Hi, this is the Seattle Mama Doc Podcast. I'm Dr. Wendy Sue Swanson. We all work so hard to perfect how we pull off parenthood, and often we may not feel good enough. I'm here with Dr. Mike Astian. Hi, Dr. Astian. Oh, it's good to be here. Thank you, Wendy. <laughs> Sorry, I was taking a short nap. <laughs> <laughs> We're recording our second podcast together. Um, Dr. Astian is a clinical pathologist, and as I explained before, that means like he went to residency after medical school because he wanted, as he... What, you didn't want to touch patients? I didn't. I was afraid of touching people, but I like people. But it turned out when I got to medical school, it, it was tough. It was difficult to touch people. Yeah. So we went and became a pathologist, which li- he's the doctor that does, like, they do all the autopsies in the dungeon of the hospitals, and they look at all the lab, and they look at all the urine. and and. But he's a smarty pants. He got a medical degree, but he also got a PhD and has studied, started companies and run laboratories. He's, um, the depart- he's the head of our Department of Laboratories at Seattle Children's. He's invented all sorts of things. He's got patents. He understands kind of the world of labs. And he's here today to help us understand what we do when we get back an abnormal lab test. Like, I want to put it in context, and you're going to help us understand what to do. Um, and I and I bring this up in particular because I advocate so strongly that parents, I mean, basically, anytime a lab comes back and I find out that it's abnormal, I always feel like I got to get it to the parents as fast as possible because I never want to hold information that I feel like they deserve. It's like you can track a Domino's pizza, but you can't track your own, you know, lab sample go through a hospital. And sometimes it seems like it's out of reach. And, And so more and more, I think, we will have access to our labs before our doctors who ordered them call us and explain them. Yeah. And so I want your help in Let's just start at the top. Like, what do you do first and foremost? What does it mean when a lab test is abnormal? Well, when the lab test is abnormal, it, you know, if you're in the ambulatory setting, in other words, you've come in to see the doctor, you're not in a hospitalized setting. Someone like me. Yeah. Yeah, you come to see you. Um, there's only a few possibilities. Most of the time, um, and it really depends how sick you are. If you're not terribly sick, but we do some lab tests on you, a lot of times um, that's going to turn out to be uh, a false positive result. And the reason why that can be false positive is that um, there's an overlap between disease and health. You know, it's not we don't perfectly separate diseased people from healthy people with lab tests. You have a lot of interfering substances that can mess with our lab tests. You know, people are drinking all kinds of colored teas and having all kinds of herbs and spices. And a lot of our Lab tests are based on, you know, color reactions and things like that. And then there's other – and there's, uh, you know, other interfering things. And then we make lab errors. You know, we we label the specimen wrong. We put it in the wrong container. We shake it. We bake it. We put it in the fridge when we're supposed to leave it at room temperature. We freeze it. We transport it. We bounce it around. And so um, it it may not be your specimen. It may be someone else's specimen. We can make an analytic error. We could look through the microscope and see it wrong. Uh, Or the instruments sometimes make errors. The chemistry isn't perfect. So a lot of times it can be a false positive. And this can especially be true if the result is pretty close to what's called the reference range or the cutoff. So when you get your lab result, really the first thing that matters is how far is it from a reference range. So, you know, if the cutoff is uh, the upper end of a cutoff is, say, 10 and uh, the highest ever seen in the history of this, you know, of this test and the sickest person with this disease is 100 and yours comes back 99, the truth is you should be pretty worried because even though it could be false, it could be an interfering substance, it could be someone else's specimen that's really, really sick, the likelihood that it's you, that it's 
indicating illness in your child is pretty high. Now, you still want to repeat it. That's your number one move, I would tell parents, mm-hmm. is it's good to, to especially if it's a surprising result. Like the doc was ordering, it was the fifth or sixth thing on their list of things. It might be they really didn't think you had this. They didn't really think you had lupus. Uh-huh. And now you have this sky-high lupus test, yep. and so you, which is an ANA test. So the first thing you want to do is repeat it on a new draw. Not on that specimen, because yep. if it's a mislabeled specimen, it's the same, you know, wrong specimen. So this it's a very good practice in ambulatory medicine. If you're not in an incredible emergency to just have another blood draw and just repeat the test. That's the first thing you want to do. Okay, and let me interrupt you for a second. So the so I, I love those two points about reference range. So just to give another example, let's say, you know, we're, we'll draw something like a ESR, which is a, a sedimentation rate, which is just a very nonspecific marker of something going on in your body. I mean, if I can say this clearly, like something's inflamed or something's sludging the blood a little bit. Yeah. And when we draw it, if, if the range is zero to 10 is normal. Yeah. And to your point, if it's a 12, you're like, oh, it's abnormal, comes back red. You look at it, you're like, oh. But what we really care about is like, if it's 82, we really think there's something going on in the yeah, body. We're we obli- don't know what it is. You're obligated to find. You're obligated to find out why there's an 82 coming out of that instrument in that case. Uh-huh. Obviously, I wish you didn't choose said rates, but that's a different Sorry. podcast. Okay, but let's say one. you know. Let's say you did. Let's stick <laughs> with it. That. Let's well, go it's so with vague, it. Right? Like, yeah. But, but anyway, but the 82. You're these obligated. Are the, these to f- are the tests in ambulatory medicine, yeah. right? We use it because we're like, gosh, it looks like you might have a blood infection. I'm going to grab a yeah. sed rate and a CRP, and I get my sed rate. I was hoping you were going to order either a sed rate or a CRP. Um, not but both. you know that we often order both. I know that because you're just people doing the best you can. Um, <laughs> but the point, but, I'm failing. But the you. point, I know no, I'm but, the, but the point is, if you have an 85, yep. you're obligated to find out what yep. that is. Yep. If you have a 12, what really matters is how sick you are. So if you, you know, if you're just a little outside the reference range, there's an overlap between disease and health. There's lab errors. There's interfering substances. That happens to be a test that has a lot of overlap between disease yeah. and health near the cutoff. So. But if the kid is super sick and has a lot of other symptoms that are really deep and indic- indicative of, you know, uh, one uh, like one of these rheumatic diseases mm-hmm. or something, then you're still obligated to now follow it. But if they don't, you could just watch it and, yeah. and, and, and reassure the parent. Now, yeah. one maneuver, advanced maneuver I like to do, not with that particular test, but with tests like calcium or whatever, is is if, the, if they really – if, you're, if the doctor's pretty convinced that they, the kid doesn't have a disease and it's just slightly outside the normal range, a lot of times it's good you repeat it. And if it lands within, don't repeat it anymore. Don't That's even right. follow it. Yeah. Just declare the second one right. Yeah. If you're pretty sure that it's just like they're – because 5% of perfectly healthy Olympians will be outside of a reference range because a refer, that's how a reference range is defined. It's, you know, uh, I want to get into the math of it. The bell curve. That, yeah. the bell curve? People yeah, know that. Yeah, so you're going to – right. So yeah. 5% of people who are perfect – and that's why you shouldn't have too many tests also because if a perfectly normal person has 25 independent tests, you know, it's a better than even chance they're going to have an abnormal result that means nothing. They'll drive themselves crazy. They'll Google that result. They'll become that disease. And this, you all have friends like this that don't yeah. tell me what I'm telling you is not true because either you're like this or you have friends <laughs> like this. And that's the reason to yeah, get yeah. lab tests when you're sick. Yeah. But in terms of looking at abnormals, what matters is the distance from what's normal, you know, from the yeah. upper end of the reference. I shouldn't even call it normal. From the upper end of the reference range, the distance, and then how sick you are. Okay, so back to, I agreed. So, I mean, I, sorry, my brain went off because I was thinking about like, well, there are some binary tests like pregnant or not pregnant, right? Yeah. You've got beta-HCG in your blood or you don't. 
we read right. it out as binary, but the fact there's there's still a threshold. And sometimes, you know, there's still a threshold inside the lab, but if it's above a threshold, we call it positive and it's below, it's negative. Like a, a, like a pregnancy kit is like that. Yeah. Occasionally, we come back with an equivocal and we'll tell you it's equivocal. You know, we yeah. there are lab tests that actually have an intermediate range. It's just as indeterminate. Right. In that case, you have to have a more advanced test, like a blood a blood test, where we do a quantitative pregnancy right. test. Right. So that happens as well. Um, but it's not there, there's nothing wrong with repeating a pregnancy test either. Of course, yeah. No, of course. Although obviously, pregnancy is something that, if it was a true positive, will declare itself. Yeah. You know, we're not going to get that wrong. <laughs> but but you said you, it's okay to repeat. I, I would tell parents it's okay to repeat any test, especially if it doesn't jive with your parental intuition about what's going on. If the doctor ordered too broad a set of things, yeah. uh, it's good to get a second opinion on tests because it can lead you down a medical adventure and give you a diagnosis you don't have. So, okay, so first and foremost, you look at the reference range. Yeah. The next set of advice you say is always repeat it, particularly if it's a surprise. No, yeah, not all, I wouldn't always repeat it. Like if your kid is, yeah, sorry. I'll I, give you a I good example, strep yeah. throat. Your kid, you know, your kid's, yeah. Your kid, your kid's in a class. Everybody's got snot coming out of their nose. They got, you know, they got uh, sore throats and fevers. And then you hear from the parents that they went in and they had a strep test and it was positive and they're being treated for strep throat. Now your kid has the same symptoms and you get a strep test and it's positive. I would not repeat that. Agreed. Yeah. You don't. Need, the truth is, you don't even need a strep test. But just test. to be clear with what Dr. Asian said, with strep you don't typically have a runny nose. <laughs> so yeah. I just want to be very clear. I'm very what, strict about this. Yeah. I don't typically draw strep tests. I mean, this you know, strep carrier testing, but we don't draw strep tests when kids have symptoms that are not typical of strep. Strep yeah. is isolated fever and sore throat. I, I'm just pointing that out because, again, well, I got you on the sed rate, so you're on yeah, me yeah. for the runny nose. <laughs> and you're, you're right. Yeah, yeah, but you sure. see what I'm saying? Like, yeah. So you don't if, – if the symptoms are consistent with the lab test, you know, like if you have pneumonia clinically and you cough out strep pneumonia and we grow it on a plate – do, you don't have to repeat that. I'm just talking right. about where it's equivocal or you're not quite sure or, or anything surprising. And then, of course, in the emergent setting, we don't repeat tests. You know, yeah. if you're having a heart attack and we may, yeah. and we do a troponin, which is the heart attack test, and it's positive, we start moving on a heavy-duty okay. therapy. Right. We do not wait. Or anything that has a deeply emergent result, super low glucose, or things that indicate immediately life-threatening, very high potassium, you got to move on that. Yep. You might repeat it while you're moving on it, but you're moving on it. Yep. And that's very common in lab testing. We obviously do a lot of emergency testing at Children's and... Um, so that's, you know, a different set of uh, circumstances. But for ambulatory, repeating is often a good idea. So and what else with abnormal tests? I mean, I think as we, as we, you know, I think some of these outside labs, you can get tests. You know, we were talking about this bef before the recording started that, you know, how is it that you can go see a non-traditional uh, uh, provider and get it, you can go and do the, the lab believed in TTGIGA for celiac, and then you can go to an outside lab and you'll get and you'll get a negative for the one that, that you believe in in lab science. Then you can go to these other labs and get a test that's always kind of positive from an alternative source and yeah. then kind of live into a disease that you don't have. Yeah, that's so very common. So how though. will, you know, with these kind of fancy charts and colorful reviews yes. and online sites where we're going to send our samples yes. and people are going to tell us we're going to, even just from a genome standpoint, I'm going to send, get my whole exome's genome sequence and people are going to tell me about my DNA. Yeah. Um, what guidance do you have as this, it's kind of Don't like Don't get testing. Yeah. I mean, yeah. my, gu my yeah. guidance is to, if your kid is, 
just has the symptoms of daily living. In general, with lab testing, less is more. You want a few well-chosen tests and a sick person. If you, if you said, Mike, stand on one foot, tell me everything you know about lab testing in five seconds, I'd say don't get lab testing unless you're sick. And if you do need lab tests, just get a few well-chosen tests by a real doctor. That's what I would tell you. And the wellness, unfortunately, as much as we all want to believe in wellness and it sounds good, the wellness movement, at least in laboratory testing, where there's a big profit motive, has just led, has made everybody sick because we're measuring things we shouldn't. You don't need to know your molybdenum level or your aluminum level. I mean, the average person. And so we're measuring all these things. And then the next thing you know, we're afraid to walk outside. We can't have the house painted. We feel like we're being poisoned. And then you can't, you can't live and you make yourself miserable. Yeah. I mean, so it's, it's like better not like to know. Companies it's like Habit and Aravail and all that stuff that's coming out with proteomics and genomics and all, all these lifestyle indicators. You're saying no just... evidence for them and they make a lot of people sick. I, I don't have any quibble. Look, if you're going to, you know, uh, take one of these tests and then need a healthy diet or do a certain kind of exercise exercise or God forbid, you know, I, actually I'm against colon cleaning, uh, but that's what they often lead to. They tell you to get your, you know, your colon is dirty. You, you colon should, cleaning. You know, a lot of like these a, tests. Like, oh, like a cleanse? A cleanse. Yeah. <laughs> you know, people want to do a cleanse. I, I have a little quibble with that. It's just, yeah, yeah, your colon's supposed to be dirty. Yeah, it's you know, like where I grew yeah. up, if you said colon, people were thinking cancer. You know what I mean? Michael, colon, colon cancer. You know, nobody... <laughs> You know, you shouldn't mess with your colon. It's the place where the bad it stuff. It should be screened when you're 50, like, it right? It has yeah. a good purpose for, yeah. Yeah, 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 for older people. I mean, for colon cancer screen, we should all be doing that. But yeah. it, you just, like, if people are going to use this data and uh-huh. make up a story that allows them to exercise more or eat right, I, I'm all for that. It, they're not hurting anybody. But I don't want people to think how, you know, it is a story. There's no real good evidence for this. Less is more in laboratory testing. There's just not good tests for the symptoms of daily living, very few good tests. And then this idea of the quantitative self and stuff is, is, you know, very overrated. But what's really, what's often happening is people are getting false results. These labs set the threshold for positivity um, very low, and so you get a positive result. Look, we all have mercury in us. It doesn't mean you have mercury poisoning. And... um, they said said it, and they're making people sick, and people are because they set the level so low that you draw my blood, and I say, "Gosh, I'm worried about the amount of mercury." It comes back positive, positive, and I would have it regardless. But you, they put the level so low that everyone's going to come back, and it's going to be an alarm. Right, and uh-huh. if you don't have you know symptoms of mercury poisoning, it's not something that you measure. Nobody recommends measuring mercury, and the average person walking around with a backache. Um, but, yeah. you know, you do two Googles and you talk to a friend who's not that smart. And the next thing you know, you're getting the Merck out test and you're you got mercury poisoning and you're eating all kinds of herbs and spices that you shouldn't be. And you're and you're staying inside and not seeing your friends. But worse, that's all you're talking about. And it's a shame for all the people who really have mercury poisoning. There aren't that many. Yeah, there aren't that many, but it's a, like a serious yeah. thing. Did or you just... listen to the S-Town podcast? No. Oh, you got to do that. Yeah. yeah. But I'm saying then, you know, they think they have this disease, and then you go out with them, and that's it. The, the friendship's over because that's all they'll talk about is their symptoms from their molybdenum poisoning. It does poisoning. all come back. I want to say something about this. We're going to end this podcast. But I wanna, it does all come back to going out to dinner. Yeah, you know I mean? it's like don't yeah, stop talking about what I'm eating and stop talking about what you're eating and let's you know, let's, let's have, have a dinner. conversation. Yeah, let's tell me a joke. <laughs> let's talk about some talk about the kids. You know, what you're eating and how it makes you feel and your bowel movement. It's like those are not topics that I want to talk about with you. Dr. Estian, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. The reality is parenting <laughs> is a high stakes job and the good news is you've got this. 
Thanks for listening. The Seattle Mama Doc Podcast episodes air every single week. I'm always interested in hearing what you have to say, what was helpful, and what you want to learn more about. Reach out to me on Twitter at Seattle Mama Doc, on my Facebook, Seattle Mama Doc, or at SeattleMamaDoc.com. Tell me what you want to learn. Tell me if you want to join me and point me to experts you'd love to learn more from. 